My name is Jennifer Farmer. I'm the host of Faith Talks, which is United Methodist Women's podcast. We also have Emily Jones on the phone. She's the executive for racial justice for United Methodist Women. Um, Alana Walls is the distance learning coordinator for United Methodist Women. Kenya Cummings is also on the, on the line. She is an organizer, a strategist, um, also a minister. And Kenya also leads the organizations or, or helps to support the organizations push out work, school push out work. And then finally, we have Sally Bonner on the phone, and she's a native Texan. She's also the transformation officer. I would like to give the panelists an opportunity to introduce themselves and to share whatever information they feel might be relevant. Um, so I just wanted to thank everyone for taking time um, out of your evening, your afternoon to come and engage this um, sacred conversation. I think many of us are still processing a Tatiana Jefferson's killing um, and all that comes with that uh, heartbreak, outrage, fear, um, and grief. Um, but we're here because a Tatiana Jefferson's life mattered and because the lives of so many murdered black women matter. Um, we are here because black lives matter um, and matter to God. And so it's an honor to be here and to join with you all. And I'm looking forward to um, the sacred conversation of the next hour. Thank you so much, Alana. So good evening, everyone. Uh, this is Alana Walls, and um, it is a pleasure to be here with you all this evening. And um, like Emily, Black Lives Matter, and thank you for taking the time with such short notice um, to join us for this very important conversation uh, because we didn't want to wait. We didn't want to wait weeks or months to um, engage in a conversation about yet another woman who has lost her life um, to violence, to um, where racism has yet again reared its ugly head and has um, unfortunately changed the lives of her family. And as an aunt, I think about her, her nephew um, who watched that, um, that incident watch that moment. And I can't imagine either of my nephews ever having to ha have to witness something like that. Um, so thank you for being here. Um, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. And I'm going to do my best to not get too emotional in this um, discussion because I haven't been able to engage in a discussion about um, a Tatiana without becoming emotional um, over the last week and a half. You don't need my permission, but I want to give you my permission. I want to give all of you permission that, you know, we're instructed to grieve with those who grieve and to mourn with those who mourn and to rejoice with those who rejoice. So do you, you do not feel like you have to maintain composure, certainly not for me or for this beautiful body of, of sisters who joined this call. Kenya? Hi, I um, am joining you all from Atlanta. And so I'm excited to be present. Jennifer, you said something so beautiful. You said one of your, some of your own. And so I just want to echo um, how grateful I am to be present with you for such a meaningful and important and powerful conversation. Um, and to say like how excited I am to see names that I know um, and names that I don't know. And to say that like um, United Methodist Women, um, United Methodist Church has been a space that like actually um, led me into a path of organizing um, and doing strategy work and ministry. And so I'm grateful to be in and among um, this conversation this evening. Sally. Thank you. Uh, I too am glad to be a part of this conversation. I have to admit it is a difficult one. 
um, being the native Texan on this line where um, Tatiana lived was about 15 minutes from my home in Grand Prairie, Texas. And so Fort Worth is, is part of me. It's a part of, um, a, I consider the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and part of home. And so it's been real uh, alarming and painful because I can see myself as her. I can see my daughter as her. And so um, I have struggled uh, with being a part of this call, but I know it's important to be a part of this call. So I'm here and I'm grateful for all of you who've taken the time to join us and to um, be part of this journey and part of the struggle that definitely continues. Thank you. Thank you so much. And before we get into the, the questions, I would be remiss if I did not give credit to the Central Texas Conference. Uh, yeah. Andy and Sally and, um, and many of us, Jackie and Darlene and Cynthia uh, and names who I, I, people who I don't all know, but they have been struggling for the past week and a half trying to think about how to lift up Atatiana's life and how to um, advocate on her behalf. I just want to name uh, the women in Texas with United Methodist Women and Central Texas Conference for the work that they've been doing, not just responding in this moment, but also the emotional labor that it takes to show up. So thank you, um, if, if you guys are on the line, thank you. So our first question is for you, Emily. Emily, anytime we enter a conversation about race and police violence, it can cause discomfort. And I'm wondering how should people of faith engage in these types of conversations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be very uncomfortable to talk about race. Um, I get that and I experience that um, myself. But I also think we're in a moment of crisis, right? Tatiana Jefferson um, is dead. She won't ever get to go to medical school. She won't ever get to live into her dream. She won't ever get to play video games with her nephew in her own home. Um, and, and her nephew, her eight-year-old nephew will live the rest of his life uh, with the memory of watching his aunt murdered in her own home, right? Shot to death in her own home um, and for no reason at all. Um, and in, in the face of that, I think it's incumbent upon all of us as Christian women, as, as women of good faith um, across lines of race to say, yes, we're willing to endure a little bit of discomfort um, to have the conversation and then to lean into the work that we are that we are called to, um, because that discomfort is really nothing, um, nothing at all compared to the trauma that um, Tatiana Jefferson's family is experiencing, and sadly that so many other families have experienced before her. Um, and if we keep going the way we're going, that so many more families will. Alana, uh, the question that I have for you is. Um, you, you spoke in your opening about what it means to be an aunt and the role that you played in your lives. Can you, talk to me, can you talk to us a little bit about your experience as an aunt and, um, and anything you want to share around um, Sure. Um, most people who know me know that my nephews are two of the most important people in my life. Um, I talk about my nephews and I talk about my dog and I like my nephew, like my nephews are 14 and about to be 17. The older one is a senior in high school. He'll be driving 
with it, he'll be having, he'll have his license in a few weeks. And it terrifies me. Um, and, you know, he, he, he is, he's so smart, um, but he is a black male and he lives in an upper middle class suburb and he often dates white girls. That's dangerous. That's, I, that, that's, that's a scary thing. And just for the simple fact that somebody might see them together and decide that that's problematic for them and do damage to him. Um, it's problematic because his parents have nice cars. And what happens if he gets pulled over? And even though he is a well-spoken, nice young man who belongs in the town that he lives in, that doesn't mean that he's free from harm. Uh, you know, I think about Atatiana and her nephew who was eight. When, when my older nephew was eight, I purposely bought a game system so that I could play with my nephews. And I never even thought that that could be something that would have put my nephews in danger. I never would have thought that them being with me could have been something that would have put them in harm because I would have given my life to protect them. And I still would. And the scary thing is, Tatiana did from her bedroom where she should have been safe. And she didn't even know she was engaging with the police. I am fearful every day for my nephews. And, and it's, it's, it's simply because they are, they are black boys. I am fearful that they could see something happen to me because I know the role that I play in their lives. And I have no idea how to protect them from any, any, any kind of harm that could possibly come at them with the simple fact that they are black young men and they are related to a family of black men and women. It's, it's beyond terrifying. You know, that makes me think, Kenya, you've talked at length about um, your belief that our work should be centered on um, trauma-informed care and healing-centered approaches. Can you talk about what that means? And one of the reasons that um, I really want to hear you talk about that is because so many people live with trauma. So many African-Americans live with trauma. When you talk about just the anxiety of situations like this, can you talk about what, how, how we should show up and approach this work and just about trauma-informed care and healing-centered care? Yeah. Thank you so much for the question. I, it's important to note that I am not a clinician, but I'm someone who's worked um, in lots of different spaces. So I've worked in education and with youth and in the church um, and as an organizer. And something that I found across all those spaces is that um, folks experience things um, that lead to like trauma responses that often are never resolved. We're living in an era where you don't have to go anywhere actually for your like to form a trauma response to something so tatiana lost her life in in her home but also like we are tatiana's story is not unique um in that like 
this is something that keeps happening. And so I love for folks to think about a definition of trauma where it's not just about what's happened to you directly, but also like experiencing the details of events and social media and intrusive thoughts and conversations about physical violence, the, the threat of it, like leads to trauma. And so um, it's been my work for the last couple of years to, in spaces that I'm in, to think about like, how do we make things trauma informed? How do we hit center the healing of, of, of folks um, in the process? Because it's not so much about just that something happened to someone, but also like creating space for, for, for there to be resiliency um, and for folks to like not be defined by that single action or thing that's happened to them. Um, but we're living in, a, in an era where even in the midst of like creating trauma-informed spaces, even in the midst of thinking about like, how do we center folks healing? There's stuff that keeps happening. So like, what is it um, for us to, to like create spaces and churches and community spaces and schools that are trauma-informed, but where the, there's not active work to stop like the trauma from happening? Um, and so that's what we're seeing with this prevalence of police violence um, enacted on black bodies on black women's bodies and it's I, it's it's really integral for as people of faith to lean into this because it's also like faith centered like Christ wants us to be healed um and wants folks to be in deep community with one another and so like if we're going to mourn with folks we have to know that they're mourning like if we're um going to celebrate with folks we have to know that they're celebrate what they're celebrating and to be and to use language um, and create spaces that are welcoming, are spaces of welcome. So like some things that we don't even think about is sometimes we serve, like we do our children and youth ministry spaces and places that look like prisons or their basement, church basements, that's cinder blocks. And that doesn't seem like a big deal, but if um, you've been detained, if your family members are detained, entering spaces like that um, are often traumatizing. So there are lots of ways in which churches and faith spaces can begin to think about how like how is our physical space and the words that we're using like impact other folks um, and the trauma that they're currently experiencing? Sally, this question is for you. So whenever whenever a situation like this happens, as a as a woman of faith, I I I I sometimes wonder where can I go in scripture to be comforted? And I'm just wondering what scriptures have comforted you. And when I say something like this, let me be explicit. Um, following fatal police shootings, instances of police brutality, um, I, I often wonder, God, do you see? And I'm just wondering, where in scripture can we go to, to be comforted? Where do you go to be comforted scripturally? There's several places I go, and it depends on the stage of the, the grief and the trauma. And this one is still... Um, very raw. So all of these three particular scriptures that I'm going to reference are, are places that I go to or that come to mind for me. And the first is Psalm 139, because I have to reclaim that I am good, that I am created in the image of God, and that in the eyes of God and in the eyes of my family, I am enough and I'm worthy of all that God has ordained for me and for my life and those um, that I love. And um, Isaiah 43, 1 through 3, which is that scripture about um, trusting in God um, to bring you through the waters 
to bring you through the rivers when they try to overwhelm you and to know that when you go through, I say the fires of life, that God is with you and saying, you know, fear not. Uh, I haven't forgotten you. I'm with you. And then the last is um, Luke um, chapter 4, 18 through 19, where Jesus is proclaiming, you know, he's the, who, who, um, who he is in the temple. And he stands and unrolls the scroll and begins to, to say, you know, uh, why he's here. But the one thing that always reminds me of that is when I'm really down low and I'm about to lose hope or the fear is starting to consume me or the trauma of what's happened is starting to consume me. Um, I can remember a challenge uh, once with when I was meeting with my spiritual director and I was talking about a situation that had me uh, really um, kind of without hope. And um, she reminded me of this passage as one that I've also uh, heard when I was accepting my call to, to be in full-time ministry. And she said to me, you know, God's given you this gift. And this was around some of my anti-racism work. And she said to see and to understand what systemic racism is. And if you quit or if you give up, who will help the blind to see? And so I'm at that place right now that, I, as I said at the beginning, to be on this call was a struggle. But I'm like, if I could help somebody else to see and to understand why Black Lives Matter, why Say Her Name matters, then I'm doing what God has called me to do. And so regardless of that struggle, I can find that strength through knowing that there is nothing to fear because God is with me. And um, while it's difficult, you know, we will get through it. I shared once about when I go back to Texas after Sandra Bland was killed um, or whatever I say she was killed, but whatever the situation, she died. And due to her encounter with the highway patrolman, and still to this day, I was just starting to get kind of what Kenya said, the trauma of, of that experience, that every time I go back to Texas, I am afraid to get behind the wheel and drive because of what happened to Sandra Bland. And every time I go back and I get in a rental car, I get in my son's car and I drive, that occurrence comes to mind. And every time I see a police car getting somewhere near in my vicinity, I'm on edge, my body tenses up. And so just kind of getting to that place of working through that, and then this happens to Tatiana Jefferson, and in her own home, it's like, my God, where can we be safe? Where can my children and I be safe in this world and other folks that look like me, judged by just the the color of our skin. It doesn't matter when, I, when I'm pulled over or if I'm pulled over by a police officer that I'm a threat to nobody. I mean, anybody that knows me will tell you that, you know, but the perception will be that I'm a threat and somehow not worthy of the well-being and, and uh, having life just because in that instance, somebody else is biased towards me for that. But those are my scriptures. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Alana, this question is for you. So we talked a little bit about um, our responsibility as sisters to mourn with those who mourn. But how can you mourn if you don't know what's happening? 
So my question to you is, as a former school administrator, as a former educator, can you talk to us a little bit about the tightrope you had to walk and the intentionality you had to bring to, to your work in terms of working with, um, with black youth, uh, black, black males and black girls? Can you talk a little bit about that just so that we're all aware? Sure. Um, you know, I, I often um, shared with people that my role as a teacher, as a principal, um, was to ensure the safety of our kids. It was to protect our kids. And that meant from anything and everything that I saw. And sometimes that meant from the, other, from the, from the teachers in the building. And that's a scary thing to think about. That, and, and I saw this more as, as the principal. I didn't see it as much as when I was a classroom teacher. But the, the way that people spoke to our students, um, and sometimes they would say, well, th this, this is what they understand, and, and because they're, they're cursing at the students. And I'd say to them, you know, they understand standard English as well. They, they understand being spoken to without profanity. And, and I would often um, have people complaining um, about the fact that I would give my time to students who were misbehaving. And, and these are often kids that were in the foster care system, kids who, um, I mean, like their home lives were, I mean, they, 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 I mean, it was nothing that any of us would ever want to experience. And, you know, and the, all of my administrative experience was in urban schools. And, I'll share with you one of, uh, an example of one of the lessons that I had to teach my students. Um, this was in the Philadelphia schools. I was um, working at a charter school and there had been a shooting after our school day had started. Um, it was at a Dunkin' Donuts. A police officer had been shot and killed. And the description was a black male wearing a, a black hoodie. So, you know, basically every black male in the city fit this description. It didn't matter how old he was. So we had a lot of students um, who did not have full schedules um, because we had students who had various credit issues and they did not want to stay in school for the full day, which was understandable because they didn't have a full schedule. So we had to make sure we were instructing them about how to engage with the police, especially on this day, because the police were going to be very agitated. We knew that we had to tell them, do not put your hoodie on. Do not wear, do not wear it today. Put it in your backpack. We gave them a letter from the school that was, had my original signature. We didn't even want it photocopied to make sure it said that the student was in school by this time, that they were supposed to be leaving the school because they have a shortened schedule. Um, that they were allowed to be dismissed and that they, to make sure that hopefully that if they were presented with anyone that they had something to show. Um, we were just talking to them about, like I said, how to engage because we knew that some of them left of their own resources were going to possibly engage incorrectly because they, did, because they didn't want to be harassed, understandably. 
but the police were going to be on high alert and every single one of them would have fit the description because every single one of them owned a black hoodie. Um, but the majority of the lessons that we had to teach them, or not the majority, but many of the lessons had nothing to do with education. It had nothing to do with the, the curriculum, the state curriculum, because we had to make sure that our students were going to survive until the next day. Um, I was often in the neighborhoods um, making sure my students got home safely. Um, we had many students who carried weapons um, and then threw them in the bushes outside of school because they were fearful of people in their neighborhoods. So that meant I needed to be out in the neighborhood to make sure they were safe because my safety honestly was less important than theirs because, well, I was an adult. So I figured, you know, I had a chance to live the life that I chose. So let me make sure that they have a chance to live the life that they want to choose. And if that meant I had to, you know, to stand on the corner and make sure my kids got home, that's what I had to do. Um, my life as a, as a teacher and as administrator in, in the urban school system was nothing like what I ever expected. It was nothing like what I was taught in college. Um, and the only way that I, um, I mean, it was just every day was something different. We kept extra clothes at school. Um, we went to homes and provided meals. Emily, and I shared a story with Emily about how I had a kid who was sleeping on the floor. I had an extra bed at my house and I had a friend with a pickup truck. So I gave the kid my bed, this extra bed, because how can you expect a kid to behave and focus on math and science if they're sleeping on a cold concrete floor? Yeah, thank you. Um, so Emily, at a time like this, people may wonder, what, what can I do? Um, and is this even my fight? And I'm wondering, as the executive for racial justice and also as a white sister, if you can talk about why it's important for, um, for our white sisters and other people of color to show up at a time like this. And uh, can you unmute yourself? Oh, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So um, at United Methodist Women, we talk a lot about a sisterhood of grace, right? We talk about being a community. Uh, and if we're going to live that out, being a sisterhood of grace means that we show up for each other, right? It means we show up for each other's fights across lines of race. Um, and I, I think a, a few things in terms of, of what that looks like or how that looks like. I think the first piece, I want to celebrate everyone on this call, because I think the first piece is listening. Right? The experiences that Alana, Kenya, and Sally are describing, those are not my experiences. Those are not my experiences with the police. I was sharing a story that I um, was walking to a, a school where I, I was also going for work. I'm in a majority um, black neighborhood, and a police car pulled up to me to ask, are you okay? Are you safe? Are you lost? No, I'm okay. I'm not lost. I'm safe. Well, do you need a ride? Uh, because this is an unsafe neighborhood, right? So for those of, and that's what white privilege looks like, right? So for those of us who have those kinds of experiences with police, um, which many white women do, um, it takes learning. It takes 
listening to understand what's happening, right? To understand what's happening um, with our sisters. So I think that's the, the first step is really um, to listen, to listen to experiences that aren't our own and take them seriously. Um, and then the second piece is, is to speak up where we are, right? To speak up in our own towns, our own communities, our own dinner tables, right? And, and be um, those advocates. As, as women change, the country changes. Um, and I want to really take a, a moment echoing what you said um, at the beginning, Jennifer, to lift up the Central Texas um, United Methodist Women as a wonderful example of that, as a really faithful example of coming together in urgency to try and, and do a rapid response, right? So I lift up one of our um, UMW sisters who took a day off work earlier this week um, so that she could make phone calls and do texts and try to put together a last minute vigil, right? Which will be happening this coming Sunday night, uh, five to seven, if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, please join them, right? And they, they um, did that work because they recognized um, the importance of, of showing up, right? Um, and, and that is just an incredible piece. And that's United Methodist Women um, at, our, at our best. That's, um, that's who we are. I think that's who we can. Um, but, but the last thing I'll say is that it's really important um, that we uh, do this work for more than the duration of a news cycle, right? Um, as I look um, at, at what often tends to happen, um, Black women do this work consistently. Black women show up for this work consistently. Um, it can be very tempting for those of us um, like myself who are white um, to pay attention while it's in the news cycle, right? Um, and then to drop it when it's not in the news cycle anymore. Um, and that is, not, um, that is not a faithful response. What we need to do is to stay in it in the long term, um, to stay in it, um, uh, together um, and to, to follow the model of, um, of lifting up again our Central Texas uh, Conference sisters, um, the black women who have taken a lead in that work, um, and the white women who have come alongside them um, to be together, um, that I think we'll need to be able to do that, and we'll need to be able to do that for the long haul, um, not just for a, a, a one-off um, day, week, or month. Thank you so much for that. Um, Kenya, question for you. So you, you've made an intentional decision to focus on trauma. Can you talk about why that is? And you also said something about um, social media and how we can be traumatized just by what we, the conversations that we engage in, what we see uh, on social media. So can you unpack that a little bit more too? Yeah, um, thanks for the question. I'm thinking about like just what I've done career-wise. So I'm 31 years old. I've worked in after-school programs. I've taught preschool. I've worked in youth programming. I've been on a church plant staff, church staff, and um, more recently have been doing um, direct consultation and organizing around the school-to-prison pipeline and mass incarceration generally. You know what's been present in all of those spaces? Trauma and like lingering effects of what happens when you don't give people space for healing um, um, and when you don't create environments that like foster um, resiliency um, and honor like that when traumatic things happens, it literally changes how people show up in the world and what they're able to do. Um, and so for me, it doesn't matter where I, where I am or whatever room I'm showing up in, I'm going to be bringing forth like the ways in which we can 
in whatever community that is. So sometimes that means like in a Sunday school classroom, create the space so that we're thinking about what happened to young people before they got in this room or what happened to adults. I mean, we see um, like even the impact of trauma-informed care in, in smaller ways, like in ways like we don't necessarily even realize. So um, when people th think about Mother's Day, folks get excited. They want to give everyone flowers. They want to tell, ask everyone how many children they have, how many children they want to have, all these things. And in recent years, you see articles and memes, of, um, picture graphics about how people come into parenting and how um, it's actually people who have lost their mothers. Like, there's all of these things that are connected to this one thing that people view in one shape or way. And so it's the same thing about like in other smaller increments for me. So it's like, whether that's doing youth work or right now I'm on a conference road trip with some colleagues in, from Charleston. And so before we left, I'm asking questions about what's what are people's accessibility needs before we get in um, to this space. We have children that are traveling with us. So I'm asking direct questions about parents about what are some boundaries or things that like you need to see in order for your child to be safe. Um, and so that's just something I bring into every space. Um, we live in the information age, so there's lots of really great information about how do we like begin to answer those questions about to do that in our particular space. The social media piece of that, I'm just thinking about um, one of the things like how we know someone can have like, like a trauma experience um, is also about like repetitive and intrusive thoughts or things. And if folks think about social media, most folks that are on social media are connected to that on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times in a day um, with a news cycle or something that's happening. There are lots of images um, and folks are wanting for the message to be shared. So some of those images are like, how, you know, how do I respond as a white person? How do I respond as a black person? Or I'm concerned about this, how do I do this? Some of those images are like video. images of folks' dead bodies. And that like can cause a lot of harm um, for folks' mental and emotional, spiritual well-being. Um, and so there's just like, there's a responsibility for us as individuals about thinking about even what we share online and how we share it, um, creating warnings for people about what content's gonna be on forward. And then also us thinking about doing less sharing of um, folks' mugshots or folks' um, um, moments of murder demise and more sharing of like how do we shift narrative how do we um, bring attention or change the reality that is unfolding in our current moment and i'm going to um uh, turn this question to you sally and then we'd love to open it up for questions emily i believe you'll help facilitate that sally um as we've been doing this work we're, we're clear that we're doing work that we have to do on a regular basis. And I'm just wondering, how do you take care of yourself? And how do you recommend that, um, that we take care of ourselves when doing this very um, triggering and difficult work? I've unmuted you, so um, you should just, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, Sally here. Um, yeah, for me, it's a, it's a daily journey. And so I, um, I have a daily prayer pattern, so prayer is very important for me. Um, I start my morning with um, scripture and prayer using our United Methodist Women prayer calendar, 
and I often will write notes about the scripture just so it sticks with me uh, throughout the day. And uh, sometimes I come back to things that raise my curiosity or, or that challenge me um, to, to chew on a little bit more. I try every day to take a, a noontime or afternoon walk um, just to decompress some, uh, to exhale and to take in the beauty of God's creation because uh, we have a wonderful park across the street from our office and I take advantage of that. And then I um, have night prayers with uh, my best friends. We've been doing that for about, I don't know, probably since before I moved to New York. Uh, so oh, probably over 10 years now, uh, we get together, we pray every night. Uh, sometimes it's intercessory, but a lot of what we do is examine our day or examine our week and to look at how God has moved in our lives or how we have moved in the lives of others and to um, share in the struggles of life, to share in the celebrations of life, but as to be that sounding board for one another. And then I have other spiritual sisters or friends that are uh, a, a network of us that if any one of us are challenged with something, we can come together and, and spend time uh, talking about that and, and helping one another to work through whatever the dynamic might be. And um, as well, I have, I mentioned earlier about having a spiritual director. Uh, she has been such a blessing in my life. Um, and so, she, you know, meeting with her, she's actually in Texas. And so when I go to Texas, I try to schedule time to meet with her face to face. Otherwise we do phone sessions together. And um, she really helps me to um, go deeper uh, in, in that understanding of, of my relationship with, um, with God and to, um, to really celebrate, you know, who I am uh, as well. And so that's very affirming. And then I think it's also important sometimes to step away so, so much of when we're involved in uh, justice work that we want to give our lives to it. And I do give my life to it. But there are times when we have to step away from it to refuel or to recenter. And I know when I've reached that limit for myself and I will step away. I'll take some days off from work and um, try to go somewhere or to be still whatever I feel like my soul is yearning for and um, to really help me to, to refocus and reground myself. And, and like I talked about those scriptures and what I know is important and what I need most. And then I can come back to the work feeling a little more whole and ready to take on whatever the challenges or the struggles or the celebrations might be. But then I can feel like myself again. And so uh, I think that's really, really important that as Emily talked about having that sisterhood of, of grace of, of people that are in your circle of influence that will love you, tell you the truth about yourself, challenge you, celebrate with you, um, and again, most of all, love you and um, struggles through the struggles with you as well as through the good times. Thank you, um, Sally, for that. As we're approaching um, our, our last 15 minutes, we want to leave space for the questions that you have who joined this call. Um, so please, if you do have a question, type it into the chat um, now. We hope to be able to answer um, a few of those questions. So 
please do feel free to add a um, question in the chat. And meanwhile, I really want to just thank you all um, who have joined um, and acknowledge that we have folks who are joining us um, from the Ivory Coast. We have folks who are joining us um, from uh, Columbus, Ohio. Um, and a, a special welcome to the Office of Deaconess and Home Missioners um, who are joining us as a, a group of 18 all um, gathered together. So I thank you all um, for this time. Um, we would love to take your questions, so please do add those questions um, into the chat. So we have a question um, from um, Millie Smith asking, what are some next steps for this? Sort of where do we go, where do we go from here? And I think all the panelists should, you know, should weigh in if you have something to add. Alana, I see you with your hand up. Oh. Oh, I felt like I was in school for a moment raising my hand. <laughs> so, um, first of all, you know, continue um, reading and educating yourselves. Um, you know, I do that as well. Just because I am a black person living this doesn't mean there isn't more for me to know. Um, I need to understand what I'm feeling. I need to understand what other people are experiencing you know, read different articles, read um, different books, um, and also help increase awareness. Have conversations with different people, not just with the people who think the same things as you, uh, you know, and challenge people's ideas. Sometimes people say things and ask them why. People don't always know why they think the things that they do. And then I also challenge you to act in terms of planning programs, um, joining um, things that may already be um, planned in your communities, but then also um, in spaces, may, and, and maybe start in spaces where you're comfortable with people that you know. When people say things that you know are wrong, that are offensive, confront them. You know, call them out on it. Call them out on things that are, that they're saying that, 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 that show hatred, that are racist. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily telling you to walk up to strangers, uh, you, know, so, you know, start with people because there, there may be people within your spaces and, you know, challenge those people on it because you'd be surprised at how much people sometimes aren't even aware of some of their own actions and how they actually are demonstrating certain beliefs. So that would be my suggestion. I've got a suggestion also, um, and I, I share this anytime I talk about race and the construct of race and the history of racism in the United States is to get really clear on the difference of shame, blame, and guilt. I find that just human nature, if, um, if you feel ashamed of something, that is not necessarily a helpful emotion. And so um, uh, I'll just walk through these very quickly. Shame says that you are wrong that uh, shame is like a confirmatory bias that you are inherently wrong or you are inherently bad. And so when a person feels shame because of something that's happened, that, that situation that, um, that is causing those feelings of shame, it goes into a, a bucket or it goes into a file that confirms their negative beliefs about themselves on a personal level. Blame is a defensive posture. It also is not a helpful emotion. And rather than feeling and sitting through what, uh, what you did that was wrong 
or really experiencing accountability, it shifts to take the onus off of you. Guilt, on the other hand, you can feel guilty about how you showed up in a particular situation or what you did and still not feel that you by yourself are wrong and that your essence is wrong. And so I think that anti-racism work is lifelong work. And by you all joining the call, there were 120 people at the height of this call. By you all joining the call, you're already signaling that you're on the path and you'll be struggling for the rest of your life because we live in an ecosystem that benefits um, from racism and that promotes it. But um, as you learn and as you have conversations with different people, I think it's really helpful to understand uh, shame, blame, and guilt and how those emotions could keep you from really doing the work that you need to do and progressing around this issue. Oh, hi. Um, I noticed that Dion had a question that I really wanted um, to respond to, mostly um, and give like a little bit of context of like even my working relationship with UMW. So I've been had the pleasure of. And if you could just just for the people who are going to be listening to this after the fact, then they won't be. Yes, yes, I'm Kenya Cummings. Um, but also, can you state what her question was? Yes. So sorry, um, Dion was asking like, what are ways the panelists must suggest that they can help build, continue trust with white women when there's been real ways um, has been broken when doing this work. Um, and then they added that they asked this question as a black woman who has experienced broken trust while doing this work with others, especially those in faith who claim to be in solidarity. Um, and so I want to give some context for my work with the United Methodist Women, which is that I've been hanging out in the Office of Racial Justice with um, Emily for the last over a year. Um, and um, Emily is a white woman. I am a black person um, living in very different places. And um, the thing is, Emily has not broken my trust this year, but I will say that we had to build trust. And so I think building trust in itself is a, is a path. Um, and I think like the reality of this work is that it's very messy. So as far as like rebuilding trust, I would say it's the same path. And there are there are conversations that I've had with Emily in the last two months that I would not have had in the first month of working with them. And so it's taken time. And so um, I think folks both on both ends have to acknowledge what happened. So if you were harmed, telling someone that you were harmed um, feels like a lot of responsibility, but sometimes you have to because people are not aware of the ways in which they've harmed you. And then I would say giving both parties opportunities to build incremental trust. So it's going to be small small steps and it's also naming that this is going to be a process you broke my trust and i want to be messy and in this work with you but it's going to take time and so like what what's the next faithful thing that we can do together in this shared work um and i also will say my other caveat to that is like sometimes being in work with people face solidarity and relationship also means that sometimes people have broken trust in ways that i actually can't work with you in this next season and that's sad and unfortunate, but as people of color, I think it's very important to be able to like put on a layer of discernment and figure out, do I need, like, is this what's good for my, for my own trauma and my own spirit um, and care? And if it's yes, then it's like, let's take these next very small steps. So like, even if it's like, I need you to show up in this way and the person shows up in this way. It's so a specific ways could be like, we're having this visual and that's where, like, I need you to show up. And if they show up, then you're moving 
in the right right way with the relationship but it's also a matter of discernment like is that what's best for my for myself and my my own care Emily you were going to respond to Dion's question as well correct Yes, um, so thank you for that. And I just want to add, as a, as a white woman, a, a word to my white sisters, um, I think we have to learn to be more trustworthy, right? I think we have to um, do some deep work of being um, in it for the long haul, of um, building relationships, and of being able to listen to things that we might not always um, want to hear right, um, being open to hear um, truths about ourselves um, that maybe we didn't know um, before um, and, to, and to lean into that. Because I think um, if we're gonna do this deep work of transformation um, and if as, as white women we're gonna ask our sisters of color to trust us, then we need to prove ourselves trustworthy. Right, um, and that is um, in not just our words, but um, in our actions. Um, and when we do something wrong, uh, we need to recognize that, um, we need to step back, and we need to try to repair that harm. Thank you for that. I just want to, um, I, wanna, I wanna lift up something that's in the chat feature. Our sister, Carol Randolph, um, she shared that seven years ago, she lost her 17-year-old nephew to gun violence. Four years ago, she attended 27 funerals for 27 black males who ranged in age from 13 to 25. Three years ago, her five-year-old great-grandson witnessed the aftermath of his 14-year-old uncle lying dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Next month is the, is the first anniversary of her niece's death, who died from an overdose and was found lying in bed cradling her three-month-old daughter. She said that as a born-again believer, I know it's only by the grace of God that I still stand. So, um, Carol, I want to lift you up and let you know that we see you. And um, actually, she also said, Kenya, the trauma is real in the lives of the people I love and care for. Beyond prayer, how else can I help so many of them who continue to grieve, especially those who refuse to seek help? Kenya? Yeah, um, first of all, thank you for sharing such an intimate, like, um, details of your life, um, and I honor and see um, the grief that you yourself are standing in, um, trauma that you've experienced, um, and I, I start by saying, seeing and naming things for the people that are around you who've experienced deep grief um, and trauma is, is helping them, so if you're saying, if you've, um, if you're in an intimate relationship and you can say, like, I know that I see that you've been through a lot. I'm, I'm naming like this is a hard reality. That's one thing I want to say that also like we can't um, we can't help folks who aren't ready to get help. Um, we can only do so much and and support. Um, I think being a, a listening ear, like being willing to be present um, and listening. I think reminding folks that are in your community the ways in which people have been impacted by, by death and other things is really helpful because I think sometimes people think if you've been to so many funerals, like this is just a common occurrence and in some communities it is, but it doesn't change the fact that it's trauma. It doesn't change the fact that um, like depression is real and impacts like the ways in which people are showing up. And so helping people that are also in the community to help walk or 
to gather around folks is also helpful. So like thinking about tangible ways that we can be helpful. Often after people die or something tragic happens, we say things like, just tell me how to show up for you and I'll do it. And that's not actually very helpful for people who are experiencing deep grief and trauma. We can't ask for the help or the things that we need, but offering things like groceries, offering to do laundry, offering to walk with people, offering childcare, and like not offering it in a, a trite way, but make like meaningful, deep ask that extend that help um, are great ways. But I also want to name that like, we can only care for our, our loved ones and folks that we care about if they allow us to. Um, and so if folks are not yet ready to seek help, um, your, your, prayerful, your prayers are important and you're, and you're paying attention. So like sometimes we see signs where we know that people might be in a space to harm themselves um, or be in deep depression and like gathering other parts of the community to bring attention to that so that folks can get the care or help or support that they need when they're ready. Thank you for that. Um, Catherine and Sarah said that she works for a child welfare agency who partners with Camp uh, Sheila Doyle, a camp for children who've lost a loved one to homicide. The camp weekend embraces grieving using therapists, activities, meal timing, uh, meal time programming, and friendships for the past nine years. The camp was started as a tribute to a mother who was lost to suicide. It is the only one of its kind in the country. It is totally staffed by volunteers. This is the example of lifting up such loss and ache. There is a parent component as well as reaching out to the adults in these children's lives. So thank you for sharing that. And let me see if there is a... Um... So this is from Barbara, uh, Barbara Jones. She said, the issue regarding violence against black people is that white Americans think police are justified always. And if there is an exception, black people must be forgiving and loving. A lot of hard discussion must be done among white Christians, white United Methodists, and be very candid and honest. As the social action coordinator in the Metropolitan District New York Annual Conference, what activities that I have engaged in are disregarded because a form was not filled out? that is not encouraging and it's not what we are trying to, to accomplish. So I trust that a staff person will um, hear this feedback and, and follow up accordingly. So thank you everyone for joining. Before we jump off, are there any resources, uh, Emily or Sally or Alana or Kenya that you can share for people to kind of grapple with after this call? This is Emily. I'll flag um, two, two books that are great resources, especially if you're relatively new to the conversation. Um, but even if you're uh, still deep, in, um, deep into the process, one is So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Aluo. It's one of our reading program um, books. Um, and the other is Push Out by Dr. Monique Morris, um, um, Criminalization of Black Girls in School. And that will be our Mission U um, issue study book this coming summer. I know that there are people that want to like do more. And uh, I think I saw it in the feed earlier. Somebody said it's good to connect with other organizations. Uh, I know, for instance, in New York, they are hosting a Crossroads Ministry anti-racism training next week. Um, so look for, you know, we have information at our hands now. All you got to do is Google your question. Ask Siri or whatever device you might have, and you can find leads that 
will direct you to connecting with folks in your local context. I know there's a group called Standing Up for uh, Racial Justice, which really focuses uh, on work with white people and doing the work. And I say to my white sisters sometimes, I know at the Mission U, I was at this last uh, summer or this summer, a uh, conversation came up and I said, you know, white people can't keep depending on people of color to teach you what you need to know, that you've got to, you know, do the work yourself and it's ongoing work. It can't just be when something flares up in the news. So to do that ongoing work, you need to find places that uh, will do the training and help you do the work that you need to do. And then there are other organizations. So I encourage you to look up Surge, S-U-R-J, or Crossroads Ministry and call them up, say, hey, do you have anything wherever you live? Do you have anything happening in my area? If not, do you know another organization? Because they're networked with other groups, you know, that you can connect with and do the work. It takes all of us. It definitely takes all of us. I would just also recommend alliesforchange.org. Um, Melanie Morris um, often leads doing your own work. That's for white folks um, around race. Um, anti-racist work um, and echo um, Sally's comment about it's a life it's a lifelong journey um, to be engaged and to be anti-racist and to be walking alongside folks who are impacted by a variety of different racial justice issues and that requires reflection so if you don't do anything else I would also add like building in time like in your daily life rhythm your weekly life rhythm where you're stopping and slowing down enough to like reflect on the ways in which you've shown up um, when thinking about anti-racist work um, and thinking about priest violence when thinking about lots of things that um, cross your screen um, that impact um, folks of color. And I have to echo um, mm -hmm. what Emily said because I feel like one of the most accessible books that I have read regarding race um, as Jennifer showed you was So You Want to Talk About Race um, it seemed to be a very easy to read book that can benefit people of all races. And, and I'll say this, it, even, it, it definitely helped me engage in conversations about race very differently. And the fact that it's broken down by topics um, and, it's, and it's not overwhelming with data, I thought was really nice. And Emily and I had worked together to put together some curriculum around um, so you want to talk about race and that might be something that we could make accessible for people um, on bridge uh, but I, I also think that people could also on their own have their own like little book clubs and have discussions around so you want to talk about race without a whole lot of extra structure like you could just have you could just read a chapter and just talk about it and just meet on a regular basis um, so I, I definitely encourage you to use that so you can develop some common vocabulary um, so that when things like this arise, which hopefully will stop arising, um, you have the vocabulary for the conversation and then you're also, you start to become comfortable with the conversations because it's going to be more difficult if you've never discussed it, if you try to discuss it when, when it's wartime, when, when things are tough. So I want to extend um, my deepest appreciation to, to Sally, to Alana, to Kenya, to Emily, um, also to our sisters from the Central Texas Conference. Thanks so much and have a wonderful evening.